Hello there to everyone on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And hello there, hello there to everyone on Instagram. So, team, what we have is we've got uh, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn over here. Great to see you. And we've got Instagram over here. Great to see you. And um, we are going to start a CLE uh, session shortly. And I'm really looking forward to having your company. Let's do some really um, annoying and weird admin. I'm a bit of a fiddler. I used to get in trouble at high school um, for like bouncing and catching a tennis ball on the table. Bounce, catch, bounce, catch, bounce, catch. And my new version of bounce, catch, bounce, catch, bounce, catch is fiddling with Lego. So if you see me just fiddling and twisting around during today's session, that's what I'm doing. Uh, what other cheat notes should I let you in on? Uh, I'm using, I'll call them cheat notes broadly. I'm relying on a set of notes I've previously prepared that are pretty good. Um, and if you'd like a copy of those notes, feel free to send me through a DM or an email about it. Uh, my plan for today is to start the substantive chat in about a minute or two. And then after a minute or two of sort of admin from now, we'll get into it. Um, this is the third in a series of five CLEs I'm going to be giving. In the past, we've spoken about corporate oppression and we've spoken about derivative actions. And you can find those presentations uh, back in the history of whatever app you're looking in. If you're on Instagram, you can find it as an older uh, post in my grid. If you're on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, you can find it as an older post wherever you're watching this from. Uh, and as I meant to say, and I hope I did say, you're welcome to just DM me, ping me a message um, in relation to a copy of the paper that I'm gonna be relying on. Uh, and also, sorry, I just want to throw this comment up on a number of platforms. I am going to be um, giving another discussion on partnership disputes this time next week. So if you get any value from today, um, I would love it if you had the opportunity to come along to a chat about partnership disputes this time next week. Okay, that is the end of the admin. Um, let's get into the theory. Oh, sorry, just before we do that, if you need to step out at any time, um, I'm planning to just leave these videos uh, saved on whatever platform you're on now. So you're going to be able to find it. So if you do need to step out, that's fine. Or if you want to get a copy of the paper, send me through a message and we can uh, get onto that. Okay. As I mentioned a moment ago, there are three sections to today's discussion. Um, the first section is going to be similarly to our other talks. We're going to talk about substantive law, right? We're going to talk about the nuts and bolts of this area relating to statutory trustees for sale. Together, we're going to learn what those are. We're going to learn why they're relevant, why we care. And we're going to dive into as well, just some of the fiddly little nuts and bolts of the area of law in relation to them. We are then, once we've sort of got our legal background and we're all guns on um, the area of 66G of the Conveyancing Act, what we're going to do after that is we are going to go through some litigated examples. Some of you might have seen me in a different guise of going through case summaries, summarising little cases, little disputes. That's sort of what we're going to do, but we're going to do it through the lens of what we've learned about 66G so that hopefully um, having equipped ourselves in section one, with the law and an understanding of that, um, we can move on to section two um, in relation to all the various litigated examples we're going to be looking at. And we can then move into section three that I'll tell you about. Section three is going to be some uh, practical nuts and bolts that I'm gonna make suggestions for you about how to deal with the issues we're gonna be work, working through. Harjit, appreciate the tie praise, mate, tie game, tie game. Uh, strong uh, to the extent I can uh, get it there. So any any praise for my ties, I'm always available for and grateful for. So what is a Section 66G trustee? What is a statutory trustee for sale? Well, can I answer that question first you by telling you about the problem that such trustees are designed to solve? Those trustees are designed uh, to solve the problems relating to co-owners, mainly of land, but also in respect of chattels or objects, things, pieces of Lego, who can't get along. And so if we think about the scenario where you and I own a piece of land together um, and we can't agree on what we're gonna do with the piece of land, 
What we do, what you might do, or what I might do, is we might go to the court and we might say to the court, hey, court, uh, we'll use nicer language than that, we'll be more technical about it, um, but we will say, uh, look, uh, we probably won't even say look to a judge, best of luck to you if you're planning to do that, but we will say what we would like, Your Honour, is we would like to have an independent person or people appointed to become trustees, which is to say the legal owners of this land. We want them to sell the land, pay out all the various fees relating to the sale, and then pay the remainder back to us. Now, that might sound a little bit fiddly, um, and that is fine. And I'll just refresh a quick bit of admin. I'm getting a couple of apologies. I've got to go on different platforms. Um, team, you are welcome to stay for this session. I'd love to have you here, especially because I'll be able to answer questions and that sort of thing. But if you've got to go, you've got to go, and that is fine as well. The recording will be up subsequently um, if you need it. So let me get back to the scenario. You and I co-own land together. We disagree for whatever reason about what we're going to do with the land or we otherwise have a falling out. And as a result of that, what we do is we end up going to the court seeking to have a trustee or trustees appointed uh, in order to become the, sorry, I'm waving at the lovely people who are joining us on Instagram. Great to have your company uh, and great to have your company on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube as well. Uh, what we do is we go to the court and say we would like an independent person to come and stand in our shoes or, or to become the legal owner of the land, to sell the land, to pay out all the, to sell the land, get that money in, to then pay out all the costs relating to the sale of the land. And once those costs are paid out, including the trustee's fees, then paying the balance back to you and I in our ownership proportions. So we might be 50-50 owners. If so, we take 50% each of the proceeds of sale, the net proceeds of sale. If we're 75-25, we take 75-25, and 25, that sort of thing. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about independent people being appointed as trustees, the new legal owners of the land, them coming in to sell it and then paying the cost of sale and then the proceeds of the sale coming back into our hands. Okay, if it sounds clear as mud at the moment, the discussion we're about to have now, the aim of the discussion is for me to help you understand and for us to step through it together. Uh, a little bit more admin. Uh, I'm working from notes here to jog my memory. You're welcome to a copy of these notes if you want to DM me or send me an email. Uh, you're welcome to ask questions as well. I like to think I'm pretty available to uh, answer any questions, queries you might have, and I'll otherwise just keep marching on through. Uh, and it's nice to get a little hello. Hello to you, Haya. Great to have your company. All right. Um, what we find is these co-ownership problems can sometimes seem to us impossible, right? You are registered on title as a 50% owner of a piece of land. I am registered on title as a 50% owner of a piece of that same piece of land, you and I can't get along. We can't decide whether we're going to keep it as a lovely piece of rural land or we're going to seek to subdivide it and make applications to council and, you know, get all this money rolling as I, as I might think or you might think in your head. So we might have some fundamental disagreement between ourselves about how we are going to put the piece of land that we each own to use. And one of the challenges is we then find ourselves in this apparently impossible position where we own something, but we can't do what we want with it, right? You can't do what you want with the land because I'm stopping you. And I can't do what I want with the land because you're stopping me. And so 66G, the appointment of independent trustees to sell the land and then pay the proceeds, the net proceeds back to us, is designed to deal with this issue so that you and I don't find ourselves co-owners of land forever, forever at war. It frees up the land, frees up the assets, um, and allows us to take away the net proceeds. And just to give away the ending or to give away one important point, let's say it's you and I who are at war and either you or I who appoint some trustees pursuant to Section 66G. Now, importantly, you or I can be the purchaser of that land. So we're not prevented from uh, uh, bidding if there's an auction or, or, or making an offer to the trustee. So it's not as if it's taken out of both of our hands and we're prevented from ever being owners again. Uh, it is going to, in all likelihood, be thrown out on the open market for a number of parties to look at, including you and including me. So I just want to make that point clear for the moment. So let's dive into the law 
uh, you will be delighted to hear that I'm not going to read through the section of the Conveyancing Act verbatim. It's extracted in the paper if you like looking at great big blocks of text. But I might just extract out a couple of really relevant things uh, as we talk through the nature of a Section 66G application, just so that you're going to be able to sort of understand it better and just to better frame our discussion. So one of the first points to look at, um, Kando, great to see you. One of the first points to look at in an application of this kind is that shattles, physical things, objects, cannot be subject of a 66G application. So you can't say the money you and I co-own, the Lego you and I co-own, the wallet you and I co-own, whatever the physical thing is, we cannot, pursuant to Section 66G, and I'll come back to that little uh, secret, that little Easter egg for you later, pursuant to 66G, we cannot get uh, trustees appointed to sell a chattel, to sell a physical object. 66G is about land, right? It's about land you and I own together, and it's about getting trustees appointed to sell that land. So that's uh, one of the important parts. Now, can I raise something now that's going to sound a bit fiddly, but I hope makes good sense. In relation to jointly owned property, if a 66G application is commenced before death, then the joint tenancy is not necessarily severed. That might sound a little technical and fiddly, but I'm going to repeat that once I remind you what a joint tenancy is all about. Remember, if you and I own a property jointly, let's say we own these two uh, bits of Lego together, 50-50. Let's get equal sizes. So I'm stealing James Wrigley's idea, I now realise. James Wrigley likes to use Duplo. And if you're not following James Wrigley, James W-R-I-G-L-E-Y on uh, LinkedIn or on Instagram or anywhere you can find him, TikTok, then you're making a goof. He uses Lego and Duplo really effectively, and I'm delighted to find that I'm stealing his idea because all his ideas are great. But let's say you and I own this piece of land together jointly. Well, what happens is if you and I own it jointly and I die, then you own the whole thing. What happens if during my life we sever the joint tenancy is that that application to sever the joint tenancy, which is quite a straightforward application, means that death consequence, um, if we put it that way, doesn't apply. So we're no longer joint tenants. We become tenants in common where we each own, let's say for the sake of this discussion, one half of the property. Now, let's say we've got a 66G application and this is... We're talking now about subsection 1 cap A of the Conveyancing Act, 66G, subsection 1 cap A. If a joint owner, let's say me, commences 66G proceedings and subsequently dies, so normally what would happen if I die is that due to joint tenancy, it all goes into your hands. But if I've commenced those proceedings and I then die, then that death itself um does not, I withdraw, it does not have the rule of survivorship consequence that normally applies to joint ownership. If I express that a different way, normally as joint owners, when one joint owner dies, it goes to the other joint owner. If we're joint owners and a 66G application has commenced, then the rule of survivorship does not necessarily apply. It's important to bear in mind. Who can the trustee or trustees be? You can have one trust corporation alone. You can have a trust corporation and a natural person. What often happens though, is that 66G trustees will be two natural persons acting together. Uh, there's a notice process uh, and um, there are um, issues relating to the partition of property that can arise that I don't intend to get into too deeply, but uh, you often find yourself discussing, and I've never run an application to finality that included this, but you often find yourself discussing, slicing off what's your bit, my bit, and making the application in respect of specific areas. But that's a rarely arises. Um, can I please take you to a decision that is, with great respect, very useful, and I commend it to you. It is a decision of um, Chief Justice Ward, as her honour then was, in 2018, um, it is called Myers and Clark, and the citation will be in the paper if you'd like to get it from me. And what Her Honour does, with great respect, very usefully, is work through the relevant criteria in relation to, sorry, a number of relevant criteria in relation to a 66G application. 
And one of the most fundamental points Harana lingers on, that I invite you to linger on as well, is that an order appointing 66G trustees will be made almost as of right. So it is almost an incident of owning land that I am allowed, that you are allowed, to apply for the appointment of a Section 66G trustee. So let me just linger on that again for a moment. An order pursuant to Section 66G is an order that will be made almost as of right. If you own land, you can get 66G trustees appointed pretty much. It's going to be a pretty straightforward application. Haran notes that it is discretionary and there's not an absolute entitlement, but as Haran says, the circumstances where a court will refuse relief are constrained. And the times when an order might be refused are when the application for a 66G trustee appointment is inconsistent with perhaps a contractual or a fiduciary obligation. And so what I'd ask you to linger on in relation to that point is that the ownership of land brings with it um, a large number of rights and that those ownership rights could, could be said almost to include the right to appoint a trustee pursuant to section 66G of the Conveyancing Act, right? If you own land with someone else, you can go to the court and almost certainly, unless as her honor notes, there's a contractual or fiduciary reason you might not be able to, almost certainly get external trustees appointed to become the owners of that land, to sell it, to pay out all the fees relating to sale and to distribute the proceeds back to us as co-owners. Hope that makes sense. Now, you'll see me glancing over your shoulder and I'm glancing over your shoulder at a set of notes and they are a set of notes that I've prepared that I think are reasonably good and you are welcome to request them from me if you'd like and if you do decide to do that, I'd be very happy to provide them to you. So feel free to ping me a message, ping me a DM, ping me an email and I'll pass on the notes I'm working from here. Now, we're still in the first part of this three-part discussion. We're learning about the law relating to Section 66G. We're learning about um, the nuts and bolts, as it were, of how the law works. And pretty soon, we're going to be diving into some examples. So we're doing the heavy lifting right now. We're putting all the... Uh, we're building the skeleton. And pretty soon, we'll come through and do, I don't know, the other systems of the body and sort of put them on there so we can understand that, you, you know how these applications work when the rubber hits the road. Can I speak for a moment about the selection of trustees? Because what we often find in these matters is, as you've just learned, a 66G appointment will be made almost as of rights. And um, a application made, I withdraw that, relief granted almost as of right is something that's very likely to happen. And it means there's not a lot of juicy case law because essentially we're saying, well, if you, if you own the land, you can get a 66G order. So the spicy area for real dispute is not, hey, is this person going to get a 66G order or not? Although we will look at a case where that comes up. The spicy, hotly contested area tends to be um, where we have a dispute about the identity of trustees that's one of the areas. And I just want to linger about well, what the court has found in relation to the selection of trustees. I've got some lovely requests in the form of comments for copies of the paper. I would be delighted to provide those. Can I ask you just to make those requests by way of messaging me because I'm not going to be able to come back through these comments and find those. So please send me a DM on whatever platform you're on um, or send me an email or, or, or whatever it might be. I'd be delighted to provide them. And I'm sorry that my multitasking brain doesn't extend to uh, noting down comments and um, and that sort of thing. So apologies for that. Be delighted to provide you the paper. Please just reach out with a message or an email. That is absolutely fine. So what are some of these criteria we're talking about? If you're having an argument about, well, is it going to be your trustees or is it going to be my trustees? Well, what the court tends to do is prefer the choice of trustees of the party with the greater interests. So sometimes, let's say I own 25%, you own 75%. Uh, let's say I apply for the 66G orders, right? And I say, right, I want my mates, I want my two mates over here. I reckon they're going to be great at it. And let's say you have some other preference that might be more 
locally located trustees or perhaps with more experience selling this type of land or something like that. Well, what the court is likely to do, uh, the court is likely to prefer your interest in that case, um, all things being equal, um, because the court will place more weight on the owner with a greater proportion of ownership of the land. The trustees, probably goes without saying, should be as independent and free from conflict as possible. Um, where the appointment is going to cover more than just phoning up a real estate agent, phoning up a conveyancer and saying, hey, we've got a bit of land to sell. Can you go find someone for us? Um, the court will want to pay close attention to the relevant expertise and experience of the trustees put forward. And so similar to the appointment of, say, the receiver of partnership assets, where a court will often consider whether a uh, proposed receiver has experience in receiverships of the kind of partnership that is being placed into receivership or the kind of partnership that's being dissolved. Uh, so I'll draw that. The, the assets are being placed in receivership, the, uh, the partnerships being dissolved. But um, similarly here for section 66G, the court will want to pay attention to, yeah, okay, all right, who are these trustees? What have they previously done? What leads us to understand they're likely to, to do a good job in this case? And the court will also want to get value for money. So the court's also going to say, all right, my trustees will often there'll be an hourly rate, for example. So my, my trustees might charge X dollars per hour. And uh, I might say, well, X dollars an hour is a great deal. And you might say, well, my trustees charge two X dollars per hour, but they've got great experience in this area and they're locally located and there are all sorts of good reasons. And so as you might imagine, yeah, you can often have a battle of the trustees at 20 paces where one party's proposed set of trustees is sort of examined to, you know, apples and oranges side by side. Are we getting your trustees? Are we getting mine? Um, and they are some of the criteria related to them. Okay, well done. Uh, you've just worked through the most boring bit of the paper that I'm reading from today, the discussion we're having today. So I'm just gonna do a bit of admin and then we're gonna move on through the discussion. Firstly, this is the third in a series of five CLEs I'm giving uh, at various lunch times um, in the coming weeks. The next one next week is gonna be our partnership disputes, previously spoken about corporate oppression and derivative actions. And if you'd like to view those talks, you'll be able to find them historically on whatever app you're on now. You might be on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn. You might be on Instagram. Um, you'll be able to find them if you flick back. I can also provide you the written papers and that sort of thing if you want to message me or email me of this talk I'm giving now or of those historical ones I referred to, uh, but probably not of the upcoming ones because I haven't finished those papers yet, but we'll get there in due course. Uh, so as I said, this is third of those five talks. I'd love you to come to the next two as well, please. Uh, the more the merrier so this is always good fun so please spread the word and you know share the link you're looking at now with your friends and all that kind of stuff like share comment subscribe all that sort of stuff other bits of admin feel free to ask questions or make comments now is probably going to be the time that's going to be best for that because we're going to start working through some practical examples so your imagination might end up firing hearing about one party or another doing one thing or another and having a think about uh, what's next there uh what else that's about all that springs to mind uh, so we've completed section one of this discussion. That's about the law. We're heading into section two of this discussion. That's going to be about various decided cases ahead of going to section three, which will be about some practical suggestions. So the first decision I'd like to take you to is a 2019 decision of the Supreme Court of New South Wales. It's called O'Day and O'Day. And it's a dispute between two brothers. What happens is uh, one brother, the plaintiff, and we'll call this brother the plaintiff, notwithstanding the fact that sadly um, the plaintiff dies during the litigation and so the litigation is then conducted by the executor of the plaintiff's estate. But that's just, well, with great respect for our purposes today, that's sort of a merely administrative issue that we can sort of gloss over for the moment with great respect. Uh, and we'll just linger for the moment on naming um, them the plaintiff. So we have the plaintiff who comes to the court, this co-owned property with their brother uh, and says, Look, I'd like a 66G trustee appointed and the court goes, as you well know now, yeah, that's fine, 66G, it happens every day. Tick, you seem to be a co-owner, tick, that's fine, great. And so section 66G trustees are appointed. Now, there are a couple of complexities though that arise through the operation, I withdrew that, I withdraw that, through the administration of the statutory trust while the trustees are in place. Now, issue one, is that the defendant, so our other brother um, in the proceedings, actually attempts to buy the land from the trustees. And that's perfectly fine. 
right? You and I might be former co-owners. We appoint a statutory trustee. We are perfectly entitled to offer to buy the property, and that's fine. Now, um, what happens is that our defendant brother um, enters into a contract to buy the land for about $6.3 million. Uh, it's, it's land of some value, uh, you know, that, that's the offer made. And there's a fairly ugly, complicated conveyance that ends up getting a little bit crunchy and there's a notice to complete issued and in essence, the conveyance fails. And so our brother, our defendant brother, fails to go through with the conveyance. The land is eventually sold, but it's sold at the amount of 5.8 million rather than the 6.3 that the defendant brother offered. So as you can imagine, uh, the plaintiff brother or the plaintiff brother's estate um, is not feeling all the warm and fuzzy feelings about the defendant brother. And one of the applications that the plaintiff makes is to say, hey, the distribution from the proceeds of this statutory trust, because remember what happens is trustees will sell the land, the money will be dragged into a fund, that fund will then be distributed out to the beneficiaries net of all the various costs and adjustments. What our plaintiff brother says is, hey, lots of these costs and adjustments arose from defendant brother stuff, stuffing about or, or whatever expression we want to use, <laughs> arose from defendant brother causing the trustees to have to do additional work in relation to this failed sale. And so those costs should be visited upon defendant brother's, uh, uh, defendant brother's share of the corpus of the trust and should not be visited upon my share of the trust. And the court disagrees on this point. The court takes the view that any claim against defendant brother in relation to defendant brother's conduct surrounding this sale is a claim of the trustees solely, right? The trustee is the other party in relation to this conduct, not plaintiff brother. Plaintiff brother is merely a beneficiary of the trust. And so the court says, plaintiff brother, that's not a matter for you. That is a matter for the trustees to agitate or not as the trustees see fit. And uh, uh, as it turned out, the trustees did not see fit uh, in relation to that. Now, defendant brother flagged in vague terms uh, a claim that they were inclined to think about bringing. And the claim was not well described. And let me uh, say what the court had to say about it. The potential claim was not clearly formulated. And so there was a suggestion from defendant brother of, hey, I'm going to bring some form of claim against you trustees for some reason that was not clearly formulated. Now, the challenge that the trustees had was, well, this claim's not clearly formulated. There's been this threat made. We don't actually know what we're going to do about this. And so um, we are going to have a problem here that we're going to have to figure out somehow. Now, what is important for us to remember just on this point is that the trustees were able to make an application pursuant to Section 63 of the Trustee Act to seek judicial advice. And judicial advice is what it sounds like. It is trustees coming to the court to sort of set out a proposed course. Hey, court, is it all right if I do this? One, two, three, four, five. And if the trustees get the advice they are after, then essentially, yes, they get the tick from the court. And if they proceed in accordance with that uh, proposed course, then the trustees are excused from any criticism in relation to administering the trust in accordance with that advice. And so in relation to this matter, what the trustees did was seek judicial advice to put aside money just in case they had to fight this not clearly formulated claim from the defendant brother. And so there's this dispute about, well, how much do you need? Um, and the trustees are in a tough spot because they don't really know because it's not a clearly formulated claim. And in essence, what happens is the trustees are able to hang on to an additional $500,000 of the proceeds of sale of the property that would otherwise have been distributed back to plaintiff brother and defendant brother in order to potentially use that sum to fund some litigation or fund resisting some litigation that might be brought by defendant brother. So in that case, the administration of the statutory trust ended with some money still being retained by the trustees. That was the decision of O'Day and O'Day. Okay. Let us now turn to the next decision, which is Sucker and Sucker. It's a 2019 decision of the Supreme Court of New South Wales. And uh, 
Uh, you will have noticed that the parties to this litigation share the same surname, um, and uh, that is not a an error nor a coincidence. Um, it is litigation brought by a son against a mother, which is disappointing. Ali, great to have your company, um, which is disappointing on its face. And it arises from a situation where son applies significant pressure to mother to enter into a mortgage in relation to mother's property. What son then does is as son is an encumbrancer pursuant to section 66H of the Conveyancing Act that I can take you to very happily, have a good time doing it. What son says is because I am an encumbrancer, then I am able to bring a section 66G application. And as you know, a section 66G application will enable a, the court to appoint a trustee to sell the property, pay out the cost of sale and distribute the proceeds. And so what the son says is, that's what I want. What mum says is the status you claim as encumbrancer arose from a mortgage that you only have the benefit of because you applied undue influence to me in relation to it. It was, a, it was an undue influence and a contracts review act claim, what some people might refer to as elder abuse. So essentially what mum is saying is, hey, the right you say you have in relation to this piece of land arises from documents you forced me, you unduly influenced me into executing. And so they are void. And so you have no right to bring this application. Now, in circumstances where mum got her certificate of legal advice from the relevant legal advisor, um, in circumstances where the son was found to have a very influential position over mum due to their close relationship and due to the lack of relationship mum had with other members of the family, as well as due to the circumstances where the son is taking mum to the law firm to execute all these various documents, the court finds indeed the son did have undue influence over mum and that pursuant to the operation of the law of undue influence, as well as it would have been pursuant to the operation of the Contracts Review Act, the uh, mortgage the son was purporting to rely on was void. And what that meant was that the son was in fact not a, an encumbrancer uh, pursuant to the relevant section of the Conveyancing Act. And so what that means is that the son was unable to get his section 66G orders. I might just work through that one more time because our brains might have just sort of curled around there a little bit. So let's zoom out for a moment. Remember we, are, we learned earlier that applicants for an order pursuant to section 66G will almost always succeed. If you own a piece of land with me and one of us comes to court to seek the appointment of a trustee for sale, we will almost certainly succeed. And so the reason I say this case is interesting is here is an application for 66G relief that fails, right? Because son comes to court and says, I might not be a co-owner, but I am an encumbrancer. And mum says, no, you're not, because the document that purports to grant you the rights of an encumbrancer is void because I entered into it due to your undue influence. The short point is the court agrees with mum, meaning that the agreement son attempted to rely on was void, meaning that the son had no rights to form the foundation of an application pursuant to section 66G. Now might be a good time to remind you that I've got a paper here that you're welcome to a copy of. Feel free to send me a DM, an email, a message. And I'll send it through to you. As we move on to the next decision, which is the 2018 decision of the Supreme Court of New South Wales. This one's called Lisi and Fono. This decision essentially is a costs dispute. We have siblings uh, who are engaged in relation to a dispute about the property uh, and what happens as, what, as, as often happens in a 66G so property co-ownership dispute is once one party flags some litigation and prepares, the other party tends to understand that a 66G order is almost certainly going to be made and a compromise will flow from that. That's essentially what happens here and the parties agree that a 66G trustee ought to be appointed. The one outstanding issue is who's going to pay what legal costs. Now, as you might remember, we learned earlier, the costs, the legal costs of the parties, so long as they're reasonably incurred, 
The legal cost of the parties to a Section 66G application are paid from the corpus of the statutory trust, right? Let's just think that through. You and I are co-owners of the property. I go to court, I get 66G trustees appointed. The trustees sell the house, get the money in, they pay themselves, they pay the real estate agent, they pay whoever's got to be paid. And so long as you were reasonable and I was reasonable, our legal fees will also be paid from the corpus of the trust. Here, the dispute was, yep, yep, let's get the trustees in. Yep, yep, let's get them paid. Yep, yep, let's get the real estate agents paid and whatever else. Um, Hugo, great to see you. I walked past Mecca earlier today. It was great to see your face. I should have stopped in. So what the court says is, yes, yes, let's get these trustees appointed. Uh, but the siblings do not agree about the payment of legal costs from the corpus of the trust. And one brother says, look, the legal costs you incurred were unreasonable. They were not necessary in relation to the 66G application. And that's because there was voluminous evidence from this brother that would have been expensive, that was indeed expensive to prepare and was lengthy, and that did not itself relate to any issues ventilated in the litigation. Right? If I can put that another way, it was an affidavit that dealt with gripes and disputes between the siblings, challenges and criticisms one sibling was making of the other. But the deponent, the, the, uh, the party uh, who swore that affidavit, Hugo will do, um, uh, the, the, the party who swore that affidavit wasn't actually seeking any additional orders reliant on that affidavit evidence. And so the other brother said, well, the legal costs of that lengthy affidavit should not be visited upon the corpus of the statutory trust. And the court said, well, that's right, because those costs were not reasonably incurred. And so they ought not be distributed, I'll draw that, or not to be paid from the corpus of the statutory trust. That's the case of Lisi and Fono. And I'd invite you to take from that, that although prima facie, your legal fees and my legal fees get paid out of the corpus of the statutory trust. Um, if you and I have a dispute, there's area for arguing about that. And we're going to get into a couple more of these cost arguments. Perhaps we're getting to that sort of technical fiddly bit of this discussion where I'll just remind you that, um, yeah, I'm working from a paper here. This isn't all from the top of the dome. Um, and so if you'd like to be working from a paper, similarly, I'd be delighted to share it with you. Magnus, great to see you. Really appreciate all these nice comments coming in as well, team. It's very, very generous. Thank you. Uh, and I'll try to answer any questions you've got as well as we work through it. So feel free to drop questions in. That's fine. Or feel free to message questions if you'd prefer not to have your sort of comment come up for whatever reason, which is fine. Now, we have another case um, that is from the Supreme Court of New South Wales. It's also from 2019. Um, and this case relates to two people with the same surname, a mother and son, again. Now, as we learned in the decision of Lisi and Fono a moment ago, um, the cost of a 66G application will usually be paid from the net proceeds of the property. If we remember our mechanic, you and I are co-owners of the property. If we get 66G orders, we're appointing a new independent person to become the new owner of the property. That independent person sells it, pays the real estate agent and everything else, pays themselves, and then pays you and I whatever's left over, right? We found we learned in Lisi and Fino that it's not every single time that that statutory trust is going to relate to, I'll withdraw that, it's not every time that that statutory trust fund is going to pay every single bit of a party's legal fees. It will only pay those legal, it'll only be applied to those legal fees if those legal fees were reasonably incurred. And so that's very, very much the position that's the subject of this next dispute in the matter of Denton and Denton. Here we have a plaintiff mother, but the plaintiff mother is proceeding by tutor. Um, and that and a tutor is not the same as an attorney, but in very broad terms, might be thought of as similar to an attorney, um, but someone in power to run a piece of litigation on behalf of the subject person. So um, the financial mother, um, financial manager of mother um, also is appointed as tutor of mother. And so mother is running this litigation by her tutor. And what mother is seeking is 66G orders in relation to property that is co-owned with son. Now, son um, resists this application and resists heavily. 
Um, Sun has also previously resisted heavily um, the appointment of the financial manager who was also operating as the tutor for mum in this litigation. And what Sun does is raise arguments to say, no, no, we don't need 66G orders. I don't want this property sold. We can come to alternative funding arrangements. Well, Sun makes this assertion, but provides no foundation for it. There's no evidence before the court that Sun or any other person you know, related to Sun or, or you know, under the control um, of Sun is able to fund this litigation. And so um, the court says, well, Sun, I'm afraid uh, you lose because there's no evidence here that you've put forward. Now, even as mum's financial manager, who became the tutor in this application, moved to sell the property, the defendant continued to resist, just heavily resisting without providing the foundation for resistance. And um, there's evidence before the court that if the plaintiff, the financial manager, I'll withdraw that, if the plaintiff's financial manager was unable to sell the property within two years, then all of their funds would be depleted. So they needed to sell this house to realise money to be able to look after the mum. That's the financial manager's job. Now, what the court find found was that, that essentially mum, by her financial manager, had to bring these legal proceedings due to the approach that had been adopted by Sun. Sun had adopted what the court found to be an unreasonable approach. And so the court found that mum by her tutor, her financial manager, had to bring this application and so ordered costs against Sun. But importantly, due to the unreasonableness of Sun's behaviour, the court ordered that Sun had to pay mum's legal costs on the indemnity basis or the solicitor-client basis, which is an even more generous costs order than we're used to seeing. So sometimes... Uh, in cost orders, we talk about ordinary or party-party costs. In this case, um, we are talking about indemnity or solicitor-client costs. And that's very much the position that um, mum finds herself in relation to son. Mum has the benefit of an indemnity cost order on account of son's conduct. All right, uh, I'm going to have a sip of water, but I'm just going to remind you of a few administrative things. Uh, one, great to have your company. Loving having you here. Two, if you've got questions or comments, feel free to share them or feel free to hold them and we can talk about it afterwards, whatever's easy. Three, I'm working from a paper that you're welcome to a copy of if you want to message me or anything like that. Four, tell your friends, like, share, comment, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. Five, uh, this talk is part of a series of CLEs I'm giving, the next of which is sort of this time next week on the same platform you're finding me on now. So we'd love to see you this time next week uh, for a discussion about partnership disputes. And six, today we have been um, working through three sort of broad areas. We've talked about the nuts and bolts of the law of 66G trustees. We are currently working through some litigated examples. We'll then come to some practical suggestions. We have a question from Josh. Uh, Josh asks, where a statutory solicitor trustee is to be appointed, will the order usually appoint the solicitor or the firm? Ah, I can give a short answer, Josh. Um, the trustee appointment will attach to the individuals, plural. So while Julie Jones and Jessica Johnson might both be partners of law firm, of uh, Jones and Johnson law firm, the court will appoint Jessica and appoint Julie in their personal capacities rather than appointing the firm, if that makes sense. Oh, I can imagine an applicant trying to appoint a firm. Yeah, no, I'm actually pretty content with with the position as I've put it. I appreciate the question, it's a good question. Uh, and I'm grateful that, you know, the discussion sparked off such a good question, so thank you. Uh, I'm gonna skip over a couple of cases. I'll at least skip over a case of Hundy and Turner. It's in the paper you can come to. Essentially that says, hey, sometimes you can get a gross sum costs order out of the statutory trusts, uh, so, uh, sorry, out of the uh, corpus of a statutory trust, assume section 66G. Um, I might quickly skate over the case of Grosh and Knights after I give you, I must give you a two minute summary of Grosh and Knights. Grosh and Knights related to two people who are formerly, formerly in a personal uh, romantic relationship and who are co-owners of property. 
the, uh, one person is imprisoned in relation to crimes unrelated to the uh, the co-ownership of the property, but they find themselves in prison. And the non-imprisoned, the free partner, brings a 66G application in relation to the property. The free partner says, hey, I've done all these things. I've paid the mortgage. I've maintained the property. I've done all this stuff. The imprisoned partner says, hey, what I've done is I've improved the property in relation to X and I'm running this business from the property and I've added a lot of value as well. And so we find ourselves in a position where a free partner is saying, yep, let's get these trustees in place, but um, let us adjust the amount that's going to come out of the statutory trust so that I get more money and they get less. And the other party saying the same thing. So we have both a free partner and imprisoned partner saying, yeah, yeah, let's appoint statutory trustees, but I should get more from the statutory trust fund. I should get more from the proceeds of sale because I've done all this stuff. Now, what the court essentially says is, well, the evidence before me is inadequate for me to find in favour of either of these parties. I can't say you did more work and deserve more money or you did more work and deserve more money because I don't have evidence before me of that. So, hey, let's do this. Let's appoint a trustee today, tick. So a statutory trustee comes in to go and sell the property and will argue about the costs another day. And I say with great respect, that, that is a very practical outcome. Great to have your company, Maggie. And we have a question over here from Aaron. Aaron says, hi, James, would love the paper on this topic. Aaron would love to provide it to you just because my brain is like a sieve. If you're happy to send me an email or a DM, I'll send that through. Also a general question, which I can answer afterwards, but I've just thrown you under the bus, Aaron, to ask now. When trustees are appointed, what liability do existing tenants have to pay rent to the trustees as opposed to the previous owners um, entire, Aaron? So Aaron, Aaron, Aaron's asking a very smart question here. So, so let's say you and I own a property that is the subject, uh, it's, let's say it's commercial premises and it's rented out to company X uh, who runs a store. And so let's say you and I are 50-50 co-owners of the, the property. And so let's say you and I are then taking 50% each of the rent paid by company X. From the time we appoint Julie and Joanna, I think they were our trustees, from the time we appoint Julie and Joanna as our statutory trustees, that rent will be paid to Julie and Joanna. And that rent will come to form part of the corpus of the statutory trust and may, hmm, and may be distributed to the beneficiaries, but I expect that the application itself, if I had applied for the 66G relief, I would have as part of that application set out prayers for relief that would deal with the rent. And so I'm more or less certain that Julie and, was it Julie and Jessamine, um, if they were appointed as statutory trustees for sale, they would have as part of their appointment uh, certain restrictions, certain guides on how they were to deal with the rent. Prima facie, um, I should imagine that uh, the rent would form part of it, be paid into the corpus of the trust, but it may indeed be that that rent would be paid out to the beneficiaries of the trust as it was brought in. Uh, good question. That's a bit of a lawyer's answer I've given, but uh, Aaron, I hope it assists nonetheless. So we've got 11 minutes to go. I don't, I don't want to keep you past time. So let me skip another case. Oh, this is a good one. Okay, um, decision of Chow, this is a 2015 decision. And I should disclose at this stage that I acted for the trustees for sale who ended up being appointed in this decision. So I'm not, report, I'm not discussing a decision I was involved in, but the outcome of this decision, the trustees ended up um, coming to instruct. Um, oh, was it, sorry, to instruct the firm that I, that I was at at the time. Uh, and then I was a lawyer who helped out with the litigation. So um, we have uh, a mum who's reasonably wealthy, who has three children. Uh, mum passes away and her estate includes property of a considerable value and some jewellery um, of considerable value as well, with one piece uh, estimated to be worth around $350,000. And what the court has to deal with is an application for appointment of 66G and 36A trustees, because remember, 66G does not deal with chattels. It doesn't deal with things. It doesn't deal with stuff. 66G only deals with land. 36A is where you've got to go if you want to deal with chattels. So this application is in relation to 66G for some very valuable property and in relation to 36A for some very valuable jewellery. 
and there is a, well, not a war of trustees, there are just competing submissions for the type of trustees to be appointed. And one uh, party suggests trustees who might be what we might loosely describe as insolvency experts or external administration experts. And they're the sorts of people who are often appointed pursuant to Section 66G. And um, with uh, great respect, Maggie, thank you for the Thai compliment. I'm always down for Thai compliments. With great respect, um, they're often excellent people to appoint because they are familiar with external administration. They're familiar with coming in and let's say liquidating a company or being appointed as receiver to the assets of a partnership or a trust. They know what it is to come and take control of an asset, deal with it, and then get out at the end. So an insolvency practitioner is a very, with great respect, wise and smart person to think about appointing as a Section 66G trustee. The interesting thing in this case is that one party proposed experts that I might loosely describe as property experts. And so we have one party who are proposing what I'll loosely call insolvency experts or external administration experts. And we have one party who are suggesting what I'll call property experts to say, hey, look, this is a fairly niche and specific property transaction here. We need some commercial property type people to get in to make sure we get maximum value. And the court works through the criteria we referred to earlier about how we're gonna select a trustee, we're gonna look at cost, we're gonna look at what we think is gonna deliver the best outcome for the beneficiaries. Um, we're gonna look at the skill and expertise and experience. And what essentially the court does is uh, find in favor, find in favor, is make orders that the, what I'll call property experts be appointed um, versus the insolvency experts. And the reason I draw this um, situation to your attention is to say that in almost every 66G application, your first thought with great respect should be, which IPs, which insolvency practitioners do I want to appoint <laughs> um, uh, to become the trustee of this property? Uh, and with great respect, that's a really good question and, and probably the appropriate one. But, or and, um, this case highlights the possibility that some alternate forms of expert could be worth considering if the specific property you have in mind um, has specific issues that a property expert might be better placed to deal with. And with great respect, um, I say the appointment of the property experts in this matter uh, was um, a, um, an example of uh, good work uh, on the part of the court. Now I've got seven minutes to go and I do plan to get out of your way reasonably well on time. There's a final case I wanted to talk to you about that's called Ambrose and Buchanan. And I think I might talk about it and then just be very, very quick on practical steps and questions. So if you've got questions, now's the time to start typing them up. Um, this is uh, a matter about a, a piece of land in Northeastern New South Wales. And it uh, is evocative of the sort of lifestyles that are led uh, in that part of the world because we have a piece of land uh, that's sort of in kind of bushfire prone uh, areas that's actually uninsurable and um, the sort of land is, is actually uh, subject to some bushfire risk. But nonetheless, it is a piece of property divided in sevenths. And our plaintiff today uh, is the owner of one fortieth of the five seventh share. So they come to own a one fifty sixth interest in the land. And this is a land that is sort of owned communally um, by a, a group of people who, who, who want to um, own, own this land pursuant to a sort of commune form of lifestyle. And, it's, and there's a degree of off the grid elements here where there's very high bushfire risk, it can't be insured, there's a lot of sharing and there's a lot of informality and that sort of thing. And the plaintiff, um, in short, wants a 66G order. Uh, and the paper has more detail about this. It's quite an interesting case if you're interested. But uh, in short, the plaintiff says, I want out, I want to appoint independent trustees to sell this land and for me to then uh, get out, uh, get, get my share out. Now, you remember that the plaintiff's share is 156th. And so we have this situation where we're going to have 55 56ths of the ownership, all of whom do not want statutory trustees appointed, all of whom stand in the way of our 156th owner succeeding in their application. Now, you might remember one of the first things we discussed in this paper today was that a 66G order will be made almost as of right. 
And that's what we find here, that 66G trustees are indeed appointed to sell the land. And there's some disappointment on the part of the 55, 56th owners of the land um, because of some of the unusual features of the land, the uninsurability, the non-compliance with development restrictions and the sort of communal aspect to the way the land is run. But the short point is the 156th owner succeeds, trustees are appointed. There's also a war of trustees. And interestingly, the 55, 56th owners get their preferred trustee. The court finding that even though the charges and costs were similar uh, between the proposed sets of trustees and the expertise was similar, the 55, 56th owners uh, were proposing trustees who were closer by. And it looked like there would be some visits to the land required in order to administer the sale. And so um, what the court did was appoint the trustees who were nearby and preferred by the 55, 56 trustees. Hope that helps. Now, um, practical suggestions. I've got quite a few in the paper, but the really, really broad one is um, co-owners of property have rights to appoint 66G trustees and they should be borne in mind and they are almost as of right. So if you're advising your client who seems to be in what we described at the very start of the discussion as almost an intractable position, right? Almost unable to get out of this co-ownership mess they're in. You can give them advice that says, hey, think about 66G. I just wanna bring a couple of other minor points to your attention. Obviously a written agreement is gonna save um, a lot of these issues from coming up. What you really want if you're advising co-owning clients is you want an agreement. And I've got some terms in the paper you really ought to think about. Um, those are the kind of terms you want in an agreement between co-owners so they can deal with it themselves. Um, as I mentioned a moment ago, selection of proposed trustees should be done carefully. Things like cost, and then remember the matter of Chow, where we had our property experts rather than our insolvency practitioners appointed. Record keeping. A lot of the disputes in relation to 66G are, well, I paid these payments for the property, you paid those payments, and you know we've got to find a way through here. And so you want your clients keeping good records and able to tell you about the payments they've made and things they say they're owed. Uh, and um, the final thing I want to say is think about 66G because you often find yourself advising clients in relation to, for example, a partnership dispute. And um, sometimes you'll think about some fairly aggressive relief in that partnership dispute. And to take an example I was involved in a little while ago, you might think about the appointment of a receiver manager to the assets of a partnership. That's a very brutal and long-standing type solution. Whereas the appointment of trustees for sale, I say, may have in that case been a better outcome because there is a focus on sale. There's a focus on getting the asset done and dealt with versus having a almost zombie scenario where we've got to receive a manager in place trying to manage what in this case was a somewhat complex uh, commercial piece of real property. And so I just want to give a bit of a sales pitch for 66G. Don't forget it. Think about potentially using it. Planning to get out of your way very soon. I've got a few questions here. Candice, can you advise the estimate of how long a 66G will take? No, not without entering into a cost disclosure, Candice. I'm so sorry, but it'll be faster than most heavily contested litigation, including for the reasons um, we've discussed earlier because the outcome is quite certain. Can you advise an estimate of trustee costs? No, I can't. Um, that'll be trustee by trustee. So you'll want to speak, you'll likely speak to one or two or three different types of trustees when you're thinking about who you want to appoint. You will say, how much money do you want? And then in crafting the sort of relief you want in your 66G application, you will probably, if you're well organized, get a prayer for their payment of X dollars out of the statutory trust. And you may also have leave to come back for more money or give the trustees leave to come back for more money if they want it. Three of a co-owner offers to buy the other co-owners sure they kind of agree. Could that impact the future cost order? Yes, is a short answer to that because um, that might uh, tell the reasonableness or otherwise with which a co-owner has behaved in relation to the sale or otherwise of the property. I said I'd be here an hour. Uh, team, we are at 59 minutes, 18 seconds. I'm planning to get out of your way very, very soon. Thanks so much for your attention. It's a real delight having you in the room for these things. So I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to be here. Uh, paper, if you want to message me, um, please, please come along to the future ones of these. It's great having your company and I'm really doing my best to, uh, to bring as much value as I can in these sessions. So it's just a real delight having you in the room. 
Um, Kando, lovely to have you here and uh, would love to have everyone back next week. Thanks so much for your time. Speak again soon. I'll try to end these two lives more or less simultaneously. Uh, great to see you, LinkedIn, Facebook and YouTube. But now it's time to end the broadcast. See you all later.